episode of Textual Therapies, a series on what we know, what we think we know, and what we really don't know about texts and human health. It's presented by me, Emily Trishanko, and this instalment features James Carney, Wellcome Trust Medical Humanities Fellow at Brunel University, London. This is the last of four conversations I had at the 2018 International Health Humanities Consortium Conference at Stanford University. But really, I needn't have recorded it so far from home, since James and I have known each other for a good six years now in Oxford, and we tend to do plenty of these kinds of chats over a glass of something strong. In this conversation, we cover everything from why someone with depression might be benefited by a completely different kind of text from someone with anxiety, to why it's important to challenge the assumption that literature always makes us better, happier people. My name is James Carney. I am working as a Welcome Fellow in the Medical Humanities at Brunel University, London. My work focuses on the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning to evaluate the therapeutic impact of fiction. And how did you get into this area? It's a slightly erratic trajectory, but I started out in literary studies, which I did my PhD in in 2006. And I worked in literary studies for a few years after that. I became a little bit unhappy with how literary studies was being conducted, so I cross-trained in experimental psychology by way of a Marie Curie Fellowship in Oxford. Subsequent to that, I took up a position in Lancaster University where I did work in computational linguistics. So my current position essentially takes the three skill sets associated with each of those and unites them in a single research project. So on the one hand, you have the fiction and the emphasis upon literary texts. Machine learning takes up the computational linguistics, and of course, the therapeutic angle is reflective of experimental psychology. So when you say you're unhappy with how literary studies was being done, is that an unhappiness that relates specifically to this question about whether the humanities can be useful, particularly perhaps in health contexts, but maybe in others as well? Was your dissatisfaction related to the sort of uselessness of, of what you perceived was going on? I don't wish to slander my colleagues in the humanities, so this isn't meant to be a criticism in that sense. But I felt that a lot of the scholarship in the humanities set itself up as doing one thing when actually it was doing something else. So, for instance, there would be an emphasis upon understanding a text and figuring out what it means, when in actual fact the emphasis would be on porting a different kind of agenda into a text. So the objects of inquiry that were put up there by the humanities as being of interest were not in actual fact the objects of interest. The objects of interest were perhaps political positions or critical perspectives, and there's nothing whatsoever wrong with that. My point isn't that I wish for the humanities or any discipline to be apolitical. That's impossible. But I do think that there should be a certain degree of honesty about what you're interested in and what you're not, and that you should use the appropriate methodologies to your object of interest along the lines that you say they're of interest to you. With respect to the issue of practicality, um, I think it's fantastic if the humanities can be useful, but I would never mandate that an intellectual undertaking has to be useful to be worthwhile. I wouldn't take that as being something that would motivate me to do anything in particular. So what is your motivation? I hesitate, I mean, <laughs> I don't wish to represent myself as being, you know, the disinterested scholar when everybody else isn't, because of course I'm as ridden with my own biases and, and normative agendas as anybody else's. But I am interested in culture in the broad sense, not culture in the sense of our local appreciation, given our eccentric location, of what culture is in Western terms or in you know, any other kind of regionalism terms. It's culture in the broad sense. I, I think of the work that 
Claude Lévi-Strauss used to do in the 1950s and 1960s. And again, that is as circumscribed by normative issues as any other area of, of inquiry is. But the object was to get at the invariant deep structures of culture, to find out what are the parameters of variation and on the right cultural variation everywhere, rather than seeking to circumscribe local variation on the surface level. For Levi-Strauss, that was phrased as the deep structures of the human mind. Obviously, I'm not Levi-Strauss, but nevertheless, I find his ambition to be an inspiration for how I conceive of what I do. And uh, I would like to see that as my animating principle as a scholar. So can you give us an example of how you're trying to get at these deep structural questions through your work at the moment? At the moment, I'm interested in looking at how structure, measured by information theory quantities like entropy, can be used to describe texts. So entropy will give you a way of, let's say, saying how much predictability there is in a text. And if you can say, okay, the text is very predictable because it reduces or reproduces patterns we're familiar with, you can say something about that. If it is very unpredictable, if it is very high entropy, you can say something else. But the point is, is that the concept is general enough to apply to all different kinds of texts. And you can take very heterogeneous materials and you can look at them from this one perspective. And when you look at entropy, when you look at predictability, you get at those deep structures because the human brain is a prediction engine. The idea at every point is to see how can we reduce the constant variation that we experience in our environment down to predictable patterns. So if you can look at that, if you can look at the statistics of prediction, if you can look at how it is that prediction operates, first of all at a neurological level, but then how culture takes that initial neurological emphasis on predictability and operates by using categories, by using all of these meta-parameters of, of, of agglomeration, you get at those fundamental structures, or at least I try to get at those fundamental structures using those approaches. Okay, so if you've got one part of a corpus of text that manifests high entropy and one that mm. manifests low entropy, what, what, what do you do next? Where, where do you go from there? That's when I think a lot of the traditional methods of the humanities become very useful. A good example of that exact delineation would be something like poetry and fiction. Fiction, obviously, is unpredictable in other ways, but typically the language used comes relatively easy to a practiced native speaker of a language. Poetry can be quite challenging, even and especially even to native speakers. So what you look at then is you look at the pragmatics of what's happening. What does fiction do? What context does it emerge in? You then say, what does poetry do? What context does it emerge in? And you start doing the anthropology of the exercise then. So you can kind of take your very, very kind of abstract, statistical, mathematical focus upon issues of prediction, and then you unfold them into a wider set of pragmatics, a wider set of human behaviours. And you see, okay, what is it about poetry in the context that we use it, in the context that we analyse it and celebrate it, that this should be important to us. And it may be that poetry, and I don't know, it's just conjecture, it may be that poetry of the kind we see in kind of modern literature is particularly prevalent in societies where there is already a high degree of predictability, so that we can entertain and kind of play with this circumscribed level of unpredictability. So, so that would be how I would see what I do at the fundamental level, mapping up then into the cultural level. One of the things I've sometimes been accused of, because I do not the same kind of interdisciplinary as you, but something slightly related maybe, is, oh, you're not really interested in text after all, you're just interested in minds or brains or something that's not, you know, literature itself. Mm -hmm. Have you met that kind of accusation or suggestion? And if so, how do you respond to it? 
yes, I have encountered it. The particular emphasis that I, I've encountered most, it's a slightly odd one because it's not so much that you're not interested in literary texts, but it's that you're somehow violating the special nature of the literary text. And I think there's a certain kind of sense of religion gone bad in those kind of criticisms where, you know, in a lot of religious traditions, you kind of profane the good book, whatever the good book may be, be it the Quran, the Bible, whatever, because it is represented as being somehow an anointed word from some transcendent principle on high. Now, you won't hear a language like that in the humanities very often because the humanities is a secular undertaking by and large. But nevertheless, a lot of that thinking, I think, is, is still very visible. And this idea that literature is this occult property which gives us access to some kind of pseudo-transcendence means that when you approach it using numerical techniques or statistical techniques, you are kind of accused of unweaving the rainbow a little bit and not seeing its transformative power. Now, it may be that literature does have a transformative power in the psychological sense. I'm very open to that being possible. I mean, advertising also has a transformative power in the psychological sense. So, you know, that's not a necessarily good thing, but it is possible. But I'm just, when those objections get made, I, I, that, that is sometimes how I think about them. If we're thinking about health humanities or medical humanities in particular, do you think maybe some of the humanities people get a bit scared because it's almost like you're replacing one god with with another one, which is the medical or the, the health god? Mm. And if so, I mean, yeah, how much do you care about health, actually? <laughs> I like to be healthy. Um, yeah, I mean, health, again, is one of those occult things. Everybody wants to be healthy. You know, who wants to be unhealthy? It's, you know, it doesn't make sense. So, yeah, it, it's one of those unqualified goods much like the theistic definition of God as, you know, the ultimate possible good. So, so in that sense, yeah, health is circumscribed by all those kind of claims. Uh, how interested am I in health? Um, my project centers on that. So I'm very open to the idea that literature will help people establish a more healthful orientation towards the world, and particularly looking at anxiety and depression. But I'm not, I'm not raising that claim as an item of faith or as an axiom on which I'm constructing a system. And in a lot of the therapeutic, using literature for therapeutic effects or using the arts for therapeutic effects, it starts out from the assumption that literature is therapeutic and then works out from there. I think that's a claim that needs to be established. A colleague of mine works in music, for example, and he was saying how in music therapy, which was assumed to be a good thing for kids with autism, the biggest meta-review ever performed came out and it turns out just nothing. It's not good, it's not bad, it's nothing. And this is almost kind of guiltily swept underneath the rug because it challenges something we want to believe. And I think because we, as a culture, tend to value literature, or at least certain parts of our culture value literature, we have a, a certain kind of predisposition to assume that literature is therefore valuable. And because we also value health, therefore literature must be healthful. Maybe so, maybe not. I suppose a standard response to that would be presumably, you know, all those studies that were being meta-analysed were not measuring the right things. There's some intangible kind of benefit that the scientists aren't able to get at. But I don't know how plausible that is. It's, it's hard to know. I mean, there's a famous study by Kidd and Castano where they indicated that literature creates empathy for up to a week. Okay, actually, now that I think about it, I think someone tried to um, replicate it and it didn't work. But, you know, on the parameters that it was first published, it was, it was a gold standard study. 
Um, there was no way you could really critique it on the basis of the experimental design or the statistics or whatever. So let's allow well, for that. Well, design, I mean, they said that they were comparing fiction with non-fiction and that it was the fiction that was good. Yeah. But actually, they deliberately chose um, non-human subjects for their non-fiction. So basically, it was like documentaries about geology or something. Yeah, 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 of course. Um, and so actually, it seems like the fiction is potentially completely irrelevant. It's just, are you reading about human beings, beings. or not? But that was my exact point, oh, which is that, um, <laughs> is that uh, there was another study done on comic book characters, and not quite as rigorous as Kid and Castano, but um, they found like an effect for a month. If you pretend to be some kind of comic book superhero, and you kind of, you know, you give people a very, very thorough induction to that mindset, that makes you more pro-social. So even if it is the case that literature does these things, there could be other things that do it better. But then, you know, maybe there's a class of people for whom you're better off using literature to help them because they're more predisposed to it. And that's, again, an empirical question, I think, that needs to be established. So what exact empirical questions, how are you operationalizing this big question about the potential health benefits of literature or literary reading at the mm. moment? The perspective I'm kind of using, and this goes back to the entropy stuff I mentioned earlier, looks at how it is that different mental health conditions interact with predictability. So the idea would be is that if you are suffering from depression, you will tend to collapse the world and all its variety into a very rigorous schema which reduces or flattens the significance of everything. And as a result, you have the, the characteristic traits of depression, which is flattened effect, lack of motivation, all of those things which, which we associate with someone being depressed. With anxiety, you could argue, perhaps controversially, that you are overwhelmed by the possibility of things happening. You can't predict your environment at all. At every point, there is no safety in anything. Anything can go wrong. Your house can burn down. You know, your kid can get knocked down. You know, you might leave the gas on in the oven. All of these things. So... Depression is predictability gone too far to the extent where it flattens out the world. Anxiety is taking the world and inflating it full of dangers. So what I would hazard as my hypothesis based on some research that's been done on the effect of abstraction and concreteness on both conditions is that exposing depressed people to very rich stimuli, to very, very kind of not so much unpredictable in the bad sense, but to a stimuli they can kind of lose themselves in will help pull them out of that cognitive frame. And conversely, if you're suffering from anxiety, you may benefit from being exposed to a prime that takes you out of the here and now, that's overwhelming you, and gives you a bit of a distance and a bit of a perspective. And uh, that's backed up by a branch of social psychology called construal level theory, and work that's been done by various different scholars on treating depression and anxiety using these types of of affordances, the abstract and the concrete. So what I'm then doing is I'm looking at how you can measure the entropy of a text, how you can look at how much predictability there is in it at the level of the language used, at the level of characterization, and seeing if the response to these texts by people with these conditions follows this pattern, such that abstract is good for depression and concrete is good for, sorry, abstract is bad for depression and concrete is good for anxiety. And will you also be doing some kind of measures of the people themselves to, to check that your hypothesis about the abstract and concrete anxiety and depression uh, distinction is, is the right way around or, or actually holds for particular individuals? Because uh -huh. presumably there could be quite a lot of variation in, in uh -huh. the manifestations of these conditions. Uh, yeah, very much so. So what I'm doing is 
There are several questions or tools. The one I'm using is called PHQ-4, and it measures your propensity towards anxiety and it measures your propensity towards depression. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're clinically on the scale, but it does mean that if you do have a tendency to suffer mental distress, which direction will it go in? Now, complicating this, of course, is the fact that mixed anxiety and depression occurs very, very commonly. So I have to kind of exclude that particular cohort from the analysis. And that is a potential flaw, I would think, that I would have to address. But is there also a possibility that that you're wrong about the uh, depression always manifesting as this rigid higher level schema, mm-hmm. the, the anxiety always being caught up? And I'm thinking about you know, anxiety in a way is also imposing a very inappropriately rigid scheme on the world because it's, you know, it's always leaping right from I might have left the gas on to my house is definitely going to burn down and that, mm-hmm. that pattern will repeat itself ad nauseum. Mm-hmm. And so maybe that's more similar to the depression case mm-hmm. of uh, not getting bogged down in detail, actually ignoring the details because, you know, detail of whether you actually did turn the gas off is kind of irrelevant. It's just your mind repeats itself along that train. Yeah, I take your point. I would argue just on theoretical grounds that that propensity to to think thoughts that are destabilizing because they constantly focus on danger, that's not so much being caught in abstraction as just having a behavioral trait that repeats, which isn't quite the same thing. No, it's it's a kind of a subtle distinction, I guess. But that's what I would say there. I mean, because you're stuck in a schematism of behavior doesn't mean you're stuck in a cognitive schematism. No, but I think yeah. one is, often is an anxiety. Yes. And it, yeah. it may not actually be very generalized. Like some people will have a social kind of anxiety that is basically, okay, whatever social interaction I've just had, now I, I post hoc analyze it to make me come out as just having been stupid. Mm-hmm. You know, the details are almost irrelevant because you leap straight to mm-hmm. the interpretation, which is, you know, I, I fucked up. I do see quite clearly the point you're making. But I would also say then that the type of reaction that follows, a depressed person comes away from a social interaction, either not caring or else probably feeling bad, but ultimately performing some kind of annihilating judgment upon, you know, social relations generally. Whereas the anxious person comes away from the social interaction saying, that thing I said that one specific thing sounded stupid. Or, you know, did I pee myself and was it visible? You know, this, these kind of very, very highly focused reactions to what they think they did. And I, I do think there is a difference in the extreme ends of this, but I, I will concede that there is a point where they blur into each other and it becomes very, very difficult to say which is operational at which point. Yeah, and you have to start somewhere. How many clinicians, medics, people who do research or clinical practice, more on that side of things, mm-hmm. have, have you talked to many of them and are they interested or do they think that this is a sort of perversely indirect and, you know, artsy way of approaching things? I've talked to quite a few psychiatrists, for instance, informally, and they are invariably interested, but I'm not sure that I trust their interest. And I think what you can often find is you have a harried psychiatrist who spends all day prescribing medication to people and doesn't have the time to engage with their patients with the full depth and intensity that they'd like. And when they see a project like this, the first thing they latch onto is that this is the kind of thing that would make them feel better about the kind of work that they do. And it's less to do with the project being particularly convincing from a methodological perspective than it is about perhaps some of the problems with institutional psychiatry and those psychiatrists being overworked and under-rewarded and therefore wanting to kind of somehow thicken up their practice with a more holistic perspective.
yeah, I mean, a lot of this conference has seemed to be about, you know, the humanity's role in healthcare being to put the human back into it. But mm. I, to me, that doesn't feel like humanities. That seems like, mm. you know, anyone can be a good human being and have <laughs> a scientific yeah, education yeah. and yeah, do yeah. that. Humanities should be something about, yeah. uh, you know, analysing with a meta perspective our tendencies to be human in perhaps aesthetic or other. There should be something more analytical about yeah. the practice of the humanities and not just, okay, let's make people be more empathic. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, if you want to make people more empathic, give them give them MDMA. You know, I mean, there's there's a simple solution there. Um, my my cynical reading of it, uh, and maybe it's too cynical, perhaps, is that what you do find at these kind of meetings, these kind of gatherings, is that you have people in the medical profession who see a certain prestige attaching to cultural objects like novels, plays, films, so on, and wanting quite reasonably to have some access to that or to find some way of making those interesting things speak to what they do. And then you have people in the humanities seeing the well-funded medical sciences and their own underfunded practice and essentially a relationship of convenience emerging where there is a kind of a trade. And that, that's okay. There is nothing wrong with that. It's not visible to anyone listening, but we're in Stanford. It's a wonderful surroundings. You know, it's a medical and teaching and learning center. And, you know, it is a great place to have a conference. You don't necessarily get those kind of resources in the humanities you do tend to get them in medicine. You know, so there's nothing wrong with relationships of convenience either, you know. Um, and I think that can be a cynical way of looking at it, but I think perhaps it's better to see it as a, a non-zero-sum game where everybody benefits. Unless, I guess, the, the way in which the convenience is manifested in the beginning then necessarily narrows down the kind of work that people mm. who do stuff in this area are engaged in, because... If it just stays as, okay, medics making themselves feel better by doing something a bit more touchy-feely and, mm -hmm. you know, humanities people getting more status, then probably not very much useful will come out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it will play to the worst instincts of both disciplines, I guess. Um, but then what it does do a little bit is it can make people less insular in their disciplines because, you know, if you're at a standard humanities or literary studies conference, you presume a certain level of erudition on the back of your audience you assume that you can drop certain references they'll understand. You can give a certain type of reading of a text, the parameters of which are quite clear to everybody. You can't really do that when your audience is made up of oncologists or pediatricians or psychiatrists. They will find that disciplinary kind of jargon just off-putting or uninteresting. And um, by forcing perhaps the humanities people out of that tendency to have these professional arguments, that's only a positive thing. And I would also say then that in reverse, that when you do have medical people being forced out of a narrow pragmatism, not even forced perhaps, but at least encouraged out of a narrow pragmatism, that can only benefit too. So yeah, I take the point that if it's too convenient, it won't fulfill its potential, but you know, small steps, so you can finesse it as it goes on. Yeah, what in your view is the thing that the medical or health professions stand to gain most from in terms of the engagement with the humanities. I think it's quite clear from our conversation what you think the humanities can gain. What is it that you think that healthcare is lacking? That's a good question. Um, the answer I would give is that in virtue of the fact that medicine is very resource intensive, you're taking people with very specific problems, you are taking resources, be they financial, be they technical, be they whatever, and you're applying them to solve those kinds of problems. And that puts you into a certain frame of mind in which you have to take a narrow subsection of the environment and use that to perform some pragmatic task. 
But we don't live in narrow subsections of the environment. We live in an environment. And when we go down the street, you see signs, you see rules, you see norms. All of these factors that consciously and unconsciously shape your behavior. And in shaping your behavior and shaping your thinking, they're also shaping your health. And I think it's very useful for, for people in the health sciences who are used to having pre-programmed, pre-existing resources to use that force a certain path of operation upon them because your tools define how you act to see that there is a bigger set of influences at work that can't be manipulated. That, well, if they can be manipulated, they can't be manipulated in the kind of pragmatic and programmatic way that the standard tools of medical science can be used. And I think that is a very useful perspective to encourage and not to encourage, I don't want to be paternalistic, but it's a very useful perspective to co-discover with people in the medical sciences to see that, you know, all of culture can be salutary or unhealthy. And it's important to figure out the patterns, the bigger patterns that feed into that. And I think humanities people will be better at that because that's the kind of data they're used to dealing with. Is there something surprising that you've learnt in your research over the last few years that you would like to share with us or perhaps share with, um, with health scientists or medics who might be still sceptical about the interestingness of what you're doing? Mm, what have I found? Um, a lot of the kind of results are kind of I mean, not glib, but you know, we've discovered, for instance, that people who lack a sense of meaning in their lives and they have a higher propensity to engage with literary texts, for instance, which is not, on the one hand, anything particularly new, but on the other hand, too, you can tease that out and you can take that to places in ways that perhaps you can't do with a research finding that isn't validated in the same way. But I don't think that's the spirit of the question that you're asking. Um, Why do you think that's uh, interesting or uh, slightly controversial finding? It suggests that not finding or not having meaning in your life doesn't necessarily mean you're unhappy, but it probably makes it more likely that you are. And that sense in which unhappy people seek out literature is, is interesting because it doesn't make them happier at the end of it. Perhaps it does, perhaps it doesn't. But uh, it would suggest to me that the idea that literature is a universally good thing for the whole population and, you know, should be taught to every school kid is perhaps the fantasy of people who are unhappy. And that can be a very small subsection of the population. And they may not be serving school kids or whoever very well by mandating that they read Hard Times or Great Expectations or Wuthering Heights or whatever it's going to be. And there's a certain kind of shibboleth attaching to literature that that challenges. And uh, that may not be something that embattled literature departments want to hear. For any other surprising results, it's early days yet, so I'm reluctant to commit myself to uh, to that. Although I will say that the most recent experiment seems to be throwing up that men like fantasy literature and women like realist literature, which is exactly what you would predict given the gender stereotyping out there. And finally, is there a slightly more off the wall? I know you have always a million questions brewing in your mind, mm-hmm. but. Uh, is there some research question for the future that you haven't started to investigate yet that you're really keen to try one day? I want to do, I mean, I started off this conversation talking about Levi Strauss. And what Levi Strauss did is he went in his mythology uh, four-volume survey of the mythology of the Americas, and he started in Alaska. And he took one myth, the bird nester myth, and he traced it all the way down to uh, Tierra del Fuego. And he looked at how the different ecological conditions 
as you went down latitude by latitude, caused the elements in the mint to be transformed. And it was a magnificent study. It's never been rivaled by any interpretive action in the humanities and social sciences that I've seen since. And, I mean, Levi-Strauss is inimitable. But he had this point in one of his essays on mythology, and he says, at some distant day, we can use computers to do this kind of analysis. And this was back in, like, 1950s France, where, you know, there were like, two computers in the country. And uh, what I would like, at some point, to look at is to do cultural analysis on that scale, to get masses of data, to analyze them intelligently, and to do it in that sense of looking at the big picture, the view from afar, not looking at the tiny little narrow niche that we inhabit, given our cultural situatedness, but to see it from that perspective of what a Martian anthropologist would see when they look at human culture. Yeah, we'll have to see whether you were born at just the right moment in history or just about 50 years too early. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's always 50 years too early, I think. <laughs> well, thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Textual Therapies. You can find the notes to accompany the episode, find other episodes to listen to, and make suggestions for future people or topics to feature on my website at trichanko.com. Do please write to either me or James if listening to our chat has given you any ideas you'd like to explore or maybe you think of experiences you would like to share. We would be very happy to hear from you.